Hi, I'm Stuart Barry. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws upon the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders, one topic at a time. Straddling the famous Silk Road, Uzbekistan has undergone enormous transformations throughout its long history. The most recent has been the emergence of a thriving independent republic coming out from under Soviet rule. To tell us about this fascinating land and how it fits into the Central Asia story, we're joined today by Christopher Bradley. Chris is a cultural historian specialising in the religion and art of the Middle East and North Africa. He gained an honours degree at the University of Liverpool and spent several years working in Arabia, which gave him a good foundation of understanding the Middle East in general. The Arabic that he learnt throughout the 1970s proved invaluable for his own travels throughout the Middle East, whilst researching, writing and photographing more than a dozen guidebooks as well as countless travel articles. For 30 years, he has supplied international picture libraries with photographs they use worldwide in newspapers, magazines, websites and museums, including the V&A and British Museum in London. This experience also led to his filming and producing credits on many television documentaries for the BBC and National Geographic TV. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. So when did you first travel through Central Asia? It was the mid-1980s when I first went to Central Asia. That was leading a tour under what was the old Soviet Union in tourist system, which was very inflexible, a whole load of bureaucracy that you had to go through. So certainly not a situation of you know, making any last minute changes. It actually works very well. I mean, given all those restrictions that you did have in the Soviet system, so that uh, in a relatively short time, that trip did go to all five of the of the stands. And just to make it clear that when we refer to the stands, we're talking to the five now independent countries within Central Asia that used to belong to the Soviet Union. So it doesn't include Afghanistan uh, or Pakistan, even though the word stan at the end of a country's name, it refers right the way back two and a half thousand years to the ancient Persian Empire, when they called these separate territories the land of the Uzbeks, the land of the Tajiks, the land of the of the Afghans. So the five stands that we refer to now, uh, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan and Kazakhstan. And in that 1986 trip that I led, then we did go to all five stands. It was just like going across um, state borders. So you could easily just sort of nip in and, and see a site and then come come back out again. But obviously, as independent countries, they've all got their own borders, rules, regulations uh, nowadays. It was a great introduction to me for physically seeing the places that were connected with you know, a great raft of uh, very important Islamic era scholars, poets, writers, mathematicians, astronomers, actually around um, uh, uh, places like Samarkand. Obviously, most people know of the area due to the Silk Road. So how did that Central Asian trade along the Silk Road develop? The Silk Road, as we as we think of it nowadays, is really just a, a linked up connection of lots of very, very smaller trading routes 
that have operated for thousands of years. So you could imagine how precious something like lapis lazuli was as a precious mineral that you could adorn palaces or, or mummies in the case of Tutankhamun in, in Egypt. So, you know, all the lapis lazuli had to come out of somewhere like Afghanistan. And there were lots of little uh, trade routes that were operating for many, many different luxurious commodities, even from as, as far back as uh, three, four thousand years. And the great breakthrough was when the Chinese decided that they wanted to get bigger horses for their cavalry to try and defeat the enemies that were on the borders on the other side of the of the Great Wall that they were building in the second century BC. And they started with, with diplomatic missions, basically. And they were getting these bigger horses, what they referred to as Tianmar, the sort of blood-sweating horses. Uh, they were getting them from Central Asia. So probably the territory of Sogdiana, uh, whose capital was at Samarkand. And they were coming into the Fagana Valley from the east over the Pamir Mountains. And they were, you know, we'll give you some silk and you give us some of your bigger horses. So that is how the Silk Road started as to what we can think of it today. And bit by bit, this diplomatic trade started to become run by merchants, not just horses, but uh, and going one way and silk going the other way, you know, but adding all these other luxurious goods from east to west. And so it slowly linked up together through the first century BC and lasted for about 1500 years after that. How did it operate? And apart from the silk, and you mentioned the other precious stones, what other commodities would have been traded? There were uh, these ancient smaller trade routes had operated, as I mentioned. And then when you, it sounds a lot more impressive when you actually, you know, link it all together. So that going out of China, it's not just the silk, but it's also exotic animals that the West had never seen, both live and also the dead skins, the furs of these dead animals, as well as smaller sized ceramics that the Chinese were manufacturing. Jade was also something that the uh, Chinese found very good market for, as well as spices, pepper in particular. That was a very big sell. Even rhubarb that you know doesn't really tend to be known or thought of as a great trading commodity. But if you've never seen rhubarb before, then uh, you know maybe you'd uh, be willing to pay a lot of money for it. And of course, the merchants weren't coming empty in the other direction. They were bringing gold from Africa that had made its way to the uh, eastern end of the, the Mediterranean, ivory that you would get from the Indian subcontinent, pearls from the Arabian Gulf, glass that was being produced in Syria and Egypt under the Romans, and other precious metals themselves. So it was a good trade going from one side to the other. But if there's anything that anyone takes away from this podcast, it's the fact that no trader, you know, loaded up a, a Bactrian camel at one end and took it all the way to the other end of Asia. It just didn't work that way. So the traders would maybe cover two, three, four hundred kilometers, something like that, at which point they would then exchange the goods for other goods coming in the other direction and they would go back to the home base. So you never really needed guides 
as such. Everybody knew where they were going because they were only ever doing a very small section of it. And uh, and these these trading links, you know, you, you didn't just hope to meet somebody who wanted to take your goods. It was all prearranged. And so there might be big strings of merchant trading connections, whether they be uh, Jewish connections going from one end to the other. That is who you were meeting at your crossover point. Or maybe they'll be Zoroastrians or, or they'd all be Turkic speaking. So there weren't any language problems. It was pretty well organized as such. Obviously, Central Asia has changed phenomenally since you first went during the Soviet era. Can you give us an idea of what Central Asia is like today? Yes, there's still a little bit of that Soviet baggage that is kept by the stands in Central Asia. Luckily, Uzbekistan is probably the least Russified, or not quite sure what the, the word would be, but they, they've shaken off the baggage as, as much as any of the stands have done. So you're not quite as bogged down in bureaucracy as you might have otherwise been. But one of the problems was because it was a very sudden end to the Soviet system and the Berlin Wall coming down and and everything sort of disintegrating, then you can't just immediately end all of your Soviet era industry. You know, that's got to keep continuing, whether it's part of the Soviet Union or whether it's part of a, of a, a new independent country. And some of the stands have been more successful in moving forwards, like Uzbekistan, and some of them haven't moved as far forward as they might have done. They've still got one foot back in the Soviet system. But with going to Uzbekistan, I think you're getting as good an independent view of what a Soviet system was, but the link still runs through today. So the fact that Uzbekistan is a very fertile country and you know they've got an awful lot of fruit production, they've got a lot of cotton production, and obviously, the trading links that they had through the Soviet time, they still continue. So there's still very strong ties with, say, the Baltic states. They're not particularly good at growing their own fruit. And so where does it come from? Well, if you've still got those old Soviet connections of the Baltic states getting all their fruit, or a lot of their fruit from Central Asia, then that still continues to this day. But Uzbekistan certainly has the best tourist infrastructure compared to any of the other stands. And it's also the only one of those stands that has a border with the other four. So they're very centrally placed. And the capital, the modern capital is Tashkent. And Tashkent really is if you've got to say which is the capital of Central Asia, including all of the the, the now independent countries, then it's going to be Tashkent. And Tashkent was the fourth largest city within the entire Soviet Union, which a lot of people don't realize. After Moscow, Leningrad and Kiev, then Tashkent in Central Asia was the, the fourth largest city. So it's still a very important city now and is now the modern capital of Uzbekistan. Were the stands first conquered by the Soviets or was it pre the Soviet era? So the Russian Empire took over that sphere of influence. Yes, it's the Russian movement to the south. If you go back into the histories, then you'll get to a period that we know a, a little bit about within our British history. It's known as the Great Game. And it was between the big Russian Empire 
maybe 150, 160 years ago, and the British in India. And the the Russian system were very keen to make sure that the British did not come out of India and come up from the from the south. And equally, the British were very keen for the Russians not to want to move into their territories. So Central Asia became this buffer zone between these two massive empires in the 19th century. And bit by bit, the Russians did start to uh, take territory. So they started picking off, not the, not the countries that we would know today, but think of them as of small khanates. Each little territory, like Bukhara or Samarkand or Kiva, they would have their own uh, ruling khan, and he would be in charge of a smaller territory. Each of them started to fall to the Russians when they were moving south and not necessarily interested in taking over territory of the British in India and what we would think of as Pakistan nowadays, but just to make sure that the British didn't do that. But of course, when they did so, the, the, the British started to move as well. And there were lots of hits and misses. So uh, the debacle of the British going into Afghanistan, you know, the first of many, many people going into Afghanistan and really finding they cannot control it at all. And so, yes, the uh, the Russians came into the various Khanate and achieved a sort of status quo that sort of stopped any explosion of this this great conflict between the Russians and the and the British. But then eventually when the Soviet Union was rising up, then they gobbled up all of that territory. And then we get the big hitters coming in like Stalin, and you have to wait until 1990, 1991 to end that system. How well did Islam survive during that Soviet era? It's always an interesting subject that I've been looking at. The fact that the communist mandate is really to certainly not promote any of the you know, belief systems uh, so that, you know, even the Rus- Russian Orthodox Church doesn't, you know, doesn't fare that well. You can't stop people believing in the faith that is so deeply embedded within families and within regions. And so within Central Asia, because Islam came in pretty much within 100 years of the death of the Prophet Muhammad. So we're talking through the late 7th, 8th century that Islam came into Central Asia, you know, over a thousand years later, the people are still going to be following Islam, whether it's outlawed or sort of just pushed underground for the time during the Soviet system. So, yeah, I mean, from uh, you're not going to stop people believing, but the great monuments, sadly, you know, many of them were uh, very badly treated during the Soviet system. So you get somewhere like the Ark, which is the main center in Bukhara. And it's where the Khan used to live, where the royal family were, the great administrative center within the city of uh, of Bukhara. And that was taken over by the Soviet army, and they just used it as warehouses or rooms to tether horses or to keep grain or whatever it might be. So, you know, they're not particularly bothered whether a few tiles fall off the the wall. And even places that were not misused like that, then you also get the system where... In a lot of cases, there just isn't the 
facilities or the money available to be able to keep the maintenance up of many of these fantastic buildings. So even in the short period since I've been going there, I can remember in that first trip in the mid-80s, uh, going to Shacharizinda, which is the Avenue of Tombs, just gorgeous um, tiling and on the edge of Samarkand, just a beautiful place to, to visit with some of the world's greatest Islamic architecture and decorative arts. Then I remember them in the mid-80s, in the Soviet period, there were broken bits of tiles and some some of the buildings were starting to to fall down. You know, they weren't misused that much. It's just that there was no maintenance of these very delicate buildings, some of which are made out of mud brick. You need to look after mud brick, otherwise it just wants to fall to pieces and, and they just want to join their mates on the ground again. I've actually got some great shots of maybe a panel of, of tiles and semi-precious stones where all the semi-precious stones had actually been stolen and, uh, and, and chiseled out for obvious reasons. And yet, as soon as you could go back there you know, about uh, 30 years later, then you know it's been completely replaced and you wouldn't even notice there was that initial damage. So don't think nowadays that you're going to be viewing a lot of that Soviet-era damage. These are important buildings and locations for the vast majority of the local population, and they're very willing to put their own money, know that they can, and they know that uh, they will be well looked after. And because the method of building and adornment has not changed that much over hundreds of years, they're restoring very much in the same style, and so it just looks as it should be. The people themselves, what are they like? Are they very similar amongst all the five stands or are they very individualised to their country? They are individualised to their country. One thing that's always been of interest to me, and especially that the fact that I mentioned that Uzbekistan has a border with the other four stands, and it's the only one that does that, then uh, you do get an influx of people just naturally uh, moving from one side of the border to the other, especially in the Soviet times, it didn't make that much difference which of the stands you were in. And so it was very fluid. You could go across the borders easily. But now that these independent countries, they want to give people passports and they want to make sure that they don't cross borders when they don't need to, just for basic security situations. You've got a lot of mixing in the situation not quite so much nowadays because there is more of a homogenous, maybe dress system through social media, uh, you know, and modern fashions. A modern girl from Turkmenistan or from Kazakhstan, you probably couldn't tell her much different looking from a modern girl in Uzbekistan. But go back 30 years or so. And, and certainly with the older generation, even nowadays, they do tend to dress in the traditional styles that they that they have. So even though you're going to Uzbekistan, the land of the Uzbeks, you are also going to be seeing Turkmen. They're the, the great horse breeding people. You're going to be seeing Tajiks. They're Persian speaking. They're not Turkic speaking, which the other four stands are. And you're going to be seeing Kazakhs and Kyrgyz people. And they were sometimes traditional clothing, which is different to what the Uzbeks would wear. 
I always try and point out people that you know, even though they might be Uzbeks and hold Uzbek passports, you can tell by the way they dress as to what is the tradition and what is the ethnic group that they actually come from. Uh, and so it's not it's not a situation where you're only going to get Kazakhs within Kazakhstan. There's Kazakhs in all of the other stands as well. It's a very common comment from travellers to the Middle East about how friendly the people are. Does that apply to to Central Asia? Yes. I'm just thinking back to something that you said before about the, you know, what are the people like? I think one of the interesting facts, and it's the same around the world, are they urban people or are they rural? And I mentioned that Tashkent is a huge city. In Uzbekistan, it's a pretty much 50-50 mix of 50% you could classify as urban uh, which would be in the big centres of Tashkent, Samarkand, Bukhara, and you know one or two places within the very crowded Fergana Valley, and the rural people. And so, you know, like anywhere, within the cities, people tend to be getting on with their own lives. They've got different agenda that is going on. So the, the city people, I would say, completely different to the rural people. Get out of those city areas. And you go to the smaller places, and it's one of these situations where the local people are as fascinated looking at you as as you are looking at them and what their lifestyles are. So you do tend to attract interest from people, whether it be a Muslim woman who is not able to go on the Hajj pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia nowadays, but she will go to that Shaharizinda Avenue of Tombs because uh, one of the uh, one of the cousins of the Prophet Muhammad is said to be buried within that avenue of tombs. And the, he, the legend is that he brought Islam into Central Asia. And so for your normal Uzbek, they're never going to go to Hajj pilgrimage. And so a good replacement is going to be going to Samarkand on this smaller pilgrimage. And they're just as interested in seeing you looking around the, this magnificent avenue of mausoleum as you are looking at them. I, I do like the way that the Uzbek, even though it's a hard life, I mean, you know, rural areas in a former Soviet system, there's usually not a great deal of extra funds and money around them, but they do seem to enjoy themselves. They enjoy life and they, they take the best bits that they like. Maybe I shouldn't say this, but quite a lot of them have taken to maybe just enjoying the odd vodka, which is a hangover from the uh, from the the old Soviet so, system. So. And so you're never going to be too far away from uh, a bottle of vodka being brought out, and you know live music and and, and people enjoying life. And uh, it, it's good to see that happening within an area that people either misunderstand or they you know they don't really sort of understand anything about central asia what do you think surprises visitors the most initially the times of the year that we go i think people will be very pleasantly surprised by the climate it's very little hindrance to actually visiting at the times when we operate the tours. And it never gets that hot. We don't go in the winter, so it never gets that cold. The rainfall is minimal. 
And so the, the climate, the conditions tend to be pretty perfect for the times. And I would say that as far as physical sites, the one that people keep coming back to and towards the end of the trip that they keep mentioning is the Savitsky Art Museum in Nukus, which is just a, a, a remarkable collection of 20s, 30s, Art Deco, Hubis, modern art that was collected within the Soviet era of paintings that otherwise would have been destroyed had they not been collected and kept at distance. And now within an independent country, the collection has been opened up to the public and it is a remarkable collection. Uh, also, the, the bustle of Fagana. People think of Uzbekistan. I mean, there's a lot of desert, there's a lot of mountain. And so there are big spaces in between. And here I'm talking about Australia, about big spaces. You know, they're nothing compared to what you've got. But when you get to the Fagana Valley, it is completely different again to what you see in the majority of Uzbekistan. Very bustling. There's a lot of industry. There's a lot of almost like cottage manufacturing, whether it be knives or wood carving or modern silk industry that is going on. So that's the area where these horses originally came from that sort of kicked the Silk Road off again. And I think also the just the sheer length of history that you can look at. So, you know, that horse trading was in the Sogdian period. We're looking back 3,000 years to Bactria, where we get the word Bactrian camels from, Sogdia, from the, the era when a lot of this was under ancient Persian control. And you see little pockets of that history that poke through all of those different layers that we'll have been looking at. So, you know, modern Uzbekistan today is what you see, but, you know, the, the Soviet influence that there has been through the 20th century and then we've got Persian influence when the Safavids, the Shia Muslims, were in control in the 18th century. And then before that, we had Timur, the great hero of Uzbekistan. You see three great statues of Timur in the three big cities, one of him seated, one of him standing, and one of him riding a, a horse. And that's from this Timurid empire that he created, which was pretty much most of Asia. That was through the 14th century. And then underneath that, we've got the Mongol invasion and the inspiration that they brought into the area in the 13th century. And then before that, the Samanid era from a thousand years ago, typified by what we're going to be seeing in Bukhara. And then before that, you know, the introduction of Islam through the bread of the Arabs, when they took over the entire central and western end of the Silk Road. And then you get into this uh, period that is known as the, the golden era of Islam and of the Silk Road. There was so much trade going on. It, it corresponds to the Tang Dynasty in China. So think 8th, 9th, 10th centuries the middle era of the 1500 years of the Silk Road, and the trade is booming, the buildings are booming, and there's a lot of stuff that comes through from that period. And that's when all of these poets, mathematicians, philosophers, scientists were developing um, ideas in, in big you know, we'd call them universities nowadays, but great centers of learning, which Bukhara 
definitely was. And, you know, they could afford to be great patrons of the arts and the sciences. And so you get great developments in algebra, in mathematics, algebra. I love the thing about, you know, algebra. I mean, obviously it comes from Arabic. And algebra is actually, originally, the meaning is the forming together of broken bones. So it's actually a medical term that it starts with. But then the mathematicians take these broken bones as numbers and then start to put the numbers together in mathematical formula and that's where the word algebra algebra comes from. There's so much bits of fascinating history that come from what is a relatively small section of Uzbekistan within the great wider history of the Silk Road. That's, that's fabulous. To bring it onto a contemporary, because uh, there's two things that you're mentioning. One was that massive influence of the Chinese Tang Dynasty, and then also the Russian Empire and the Soviet era bringing up to the modern day, is there a large Chinese influence coming through again, that Central Asia region? And second stage, do you think there is slight concern in the Central Asia region, the republics, with what's going on in Ukraine at the moment? Uh, yeah, I think there's two questions that we've got there. One is the Chinese connection. Uh, obviously, there was historically for that. And as somebody who operates at the tourist level, if there is a Chinese influence within Uzbekistan, and I'm sure there must be, then I'm not really aware of it. You know, you're not going to be mixing or seeing a lot of Chinese making a tour of Uzbekistan. I'm sure it's there, but it probably operates at government level uh, as opposed to the level that, that we're going to be traveling at. That that's my perspective from Uzbekistan, because the Uzbeks are not particularly mineral rich. So somewhere like Kazakhstan and somewhere like Turkmenistan is different. They are sitting on huge amounts of oil and gas. And where is that going? It's going on the new Silk Road in the opposite direction, going back to China. So yeah, there is a new Silk Road and its pipelines and its railway lines and the railway line uh, runs through Kazakhstan. So some of the stands, some of the other stands are much more reliant and much more of a of a prospect for Chinese interest as opposed to Uzbekistan. It's not particularly ore rich, whereas certainly Tajikistan, which is relatively poor, but very mineral rich, but a little bit unstable. Uh, because of that border with with Afghanistan, you know, some of the stands you really, you know, you can be very adventurous and go there. But for most people, they want a bit of stability. So the Chinese connection, it is in within Central Asia, and I'm sure it is within Uzbekistan, but you wouldn't be aware of it. It's not as obvious as in other stands. And uh, the Ukraine situation. Yes. I mean, I mentioned that the Uzbeks still have these Soviet connections and they still have these Soviet connections that include Russia and Belarus and Ukraine. So they are tied in the fact that they, you know, they have a similar 31 year independence from the from the old Soviet system. And they have their own little sort of banding together. But again, 
at ground level, at tourist level, are you going to see any of that? I, I don't. I don't think so. At government level, yes. You know, they're going to have their own network of connections that we might be aware of, or in most cases, we're probably not. Certainly, uh, from from what I can see, Uzbekistan is the most stable, and it's the least down that is going to get affected by exterior interference, whether that be commercial or whether it be any sort of conflict situation. Uzbekistan's got a border with Afghanistan, and it managed to survive the problems with Afghanistan reasonably well. And, you know, hopefully that that situation seems to be sorted out nowadays. And of course, I've got to ask the question, what's your favourite place in Uzbekistan? It's got to be Kiva. Kiva in the very north of Uzbekistan. And one of the things I haven't mentioned is the fact that when you when the Silk Road is coming through China, basically there's just one route. There's no real reason to take alternative routes. When you get through Central Asia and you're going through Iran, there's just one route that you take going through the northern Iran at the southern end of the Caspian Sea. But in Central Asia, there's at least, I, there's going to be hundreds of different combinations of routes that you could call the Silk Road. There was not one single route within Central Asia. So in some places, you've got as many as three or four different parallel routes that go through Central Asia that would all be chosen at different times of the year, at different times of the 1500 years. Now, whether that be avoiding the deserts in the summer or whether it be avoiding the runoff from the Himalayas and the Pamirs in the and the mountains above Afghanistan because of the, the meltwater that's going down, because you've got to get over these uh, rivers one way or another. So politically, different areas would be fighting each other. Geologically, it is an earthquake zone, so you do get um, earthquakes within the region. And so any of those situations could actually put one city or a string of cities out of operation. And so you'd go to one of the parallel routes that we're going through. And also during the time of Timur in the 14th century, he made sure that people went through his city by destroying all the other alternatives that you could, <laughs> that you could go through so that they had to come through the central route through Samarkand. So there's lots of reasons why you might go one route or another. But the very northern route, I mean, it seems it's so remote and it seems so unlikely that people, given the alternatives, would actually want to cross the, the Kizilkum and the, uh, the Karakum deserts, uh, the Red Desert and the Black Desert, to actually go through Kiva. It seems impossible that people will want to do that, but I've just explained the reasons why they might have to. And the fact that it's so remote and so well protected from, from outsiders so that what you've got today is a UNESCO protected site. In fact, all of the big cities and sites, they're all UNESCO World Heritage sites nowadays. So the entire old city of Kiva, when you walk in through those gates initially and you see the old city spread around, and you can get up to a viewpoint and you can you can look down on this old city. It's pretty well preserved. 
and really enjoy it. It's it's the sort of place where other people, local Uzbeks, actually go to Kiva because it's so different for them. I can't guarantee this, but normally there's at least one wedding going on during the time when when a tour group is visiting Kiva. And it's just great to see the people enjoying themselves. And there's local dancing and there's local music. And it's this odd mixture of so many of the different styles. There's a lot of Kazakh influence because you're right on the very close to the border with Kazakhstan. So uh, yes, you know, and there's still the silk industry that is still going on. They're making silk carpets. They're making Susanna, the the needlework uh, with silk. That's still still carrying on, and it's just a great collection of of mosques, madrasas, mausoleums, minarets. A fantastic place. Constant high concentration of some of the world's top Islamic art within a relatively small space. And I think to me, that is what's the attraction of Kiva. Chris, thank you so very much for painting such a wonderful picture of what an amazing destination. And we all hope we can travel there soon. So thanks very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you for joining us at The Thinking Traveller, brought to you by Academy Travel, a leader in small group cultural tours. Visit our website, at academytravel.com.au to access blog articles or join our online program of lectures and short courses brought to you by experts around the world.